This is James Woodcock's podcast, episode 36, recorded 15th of February 2013, Revolution Software. Today I have with me one of the masterminds behind various classic point-and-click adventure titles, including the Broken Sword series and many more besides. Please welcome Charles Cecil, CEO of Revolution Software. Thanks, James. So, Charles, please tell us a little bit about your background. Um, it, it goes back to when I was uh, just left school and... Um, I was. Uh, I decided that I wanted to be an engineer because my grandfather had been an engineer, and it seemed like a, a good profession. Indeed, it is a very good profession. Um, and I got sponsored by Ford. Uh, it was a very good sponsorship, and uh, I read engineering and management at, at Manchester University. And it became fairly clear, fairly quickly, that actually um, there were many, many talented engineers, and I wasn't one of them. Uh, a friend of mine um, had just started a company. He disassembled the ROM of the ZX80. And um, he invited me to write adventure games. So uh, this is back in 1980, 1981, actually. Um, so, you know, really at the very beginning of the European games industry. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a couple of adventure games uh, for the company. And then he joined me. He, he invited me to join, which I did. And um, I've been working in games ever since. So I, I, I owe him a great debt of gratitude, really. It's a, it's a terrific. It's lovely to work in, in, in computer games. And... Um, uh, and, and that was, you know, a great opportunity that was provided while, while I was at university. So when you'd say create computer games, was that actually storyboarding or was that actual coding? Um, no, it was designing text adventures. So what I would do is on, on a bit of graph paper, I would uh, design the flow, um, define the objects, define, write the text. Um, and then he would actually uh, program it. He'd, he'd written um, a fairly simple adventure um, parser. Um, for the for the ZX81, and of course um, this is prior and point and click adventures. This is when it's well, literally it's text, 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 isn't this it? This is text only. And and I mean, what was sweet is that I actually met somebody um, a few years later um, who was a great Amiga fan, and then actually uh, worked worked with us on Lure of the Temptress, as it happens. But um, he was so impressed when I told him that I'd written this game because he sort of described um, one of the the, the 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 later games, which was called Espionage Island. Uh, and he described the image that he had in his mind of the plane and the and the ivy and the and, and the smoke billowing and and the interesting thing is that absolutely none of this was in my description. Um, what was very powerful, what is very powerful in text adventures, is that I guess like reading a book, is that provided you give enough description, then the the, the reader or, or the player will um, then imagine the scene in their own mind. Um, and there was a lot of criticism when we moved from uh, text adventures to graphic adventures because it was felt that something had been lost. But, I mean, that's always the way. Um, I guess it's moving from black and white which uh, films, which uh, are so evocative to, to colour. Um, you know, something's gained, something's lost. A more recent transition from 2D to 3D, in the adventure gaming space in particular, that was uh, caused a bit of an outcry for a lot yes, of different yes. developers and publishers. Yes. Yep, and, 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 and I guess in many ways it is probably like like moving from black and white to colour or indeed from, you know, from, from silence to talkie. Um, that initially, uh, people are quite right that, that it's the technology that... Um, 
uh, the, the civic enhancement um, and, and actually the quality creatively has dropped. Um, but, but things move forward and um, you know they come to balance themselves. So how did Revolution Software itself begin? Aha. Well, um, the company that uh, I'd worked for, for Written Adventures for was called Arctic Computing. Um, and um, Arctic was very successful for a time, but it was, a, it was very much part of a cottage industry. And um, as the industry grew and we became successful, so particularly big American companies got involved. So Activision was very early on the scene. Um, uh, and, and also companies like US Gold and Ocean, who um, went to the, uh, the big uh, arcade, um, Taito and Sega and people, um, the, the, producers, the big producers of arcade games, um, and licensed them. And pretty quickly, small companies like Arctic were blown away and um, disappeared. I had um, met uh, a fellow that you know very well, Tony Warner. Indeed. Um, back in the early days, he'd written a, an absolutely superb game called Obsidian uh, while he was at school. And um, I, I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, this is absolutely fantastic. And he happened to live very close. Um, the company was based in a place called Brands Burton in East Yorkshire. Uh, and Tony was in a place called Bruff, which is near Hull. Um, so he was very close. And um, we, snapped, we snapped up the game. And, uh, and that was 1985, actually. And started working with Tony. And apart from maybe two or three years when you know, we went off and did different things, um, we've been working together ever since, actually. And um, which is great, but um, I, I then set up a, a conversion house called Paragon Programming down in London. Um, Tony came and worked there, um, as did a fellow called Adam Waring, I think. Um, and um, then um, I was approached by US Gold to go and work as their development manager. And I was expecting—I don't know—do you remember US Gold? Oh, I certainly do. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was expecting this fantastic—you know—I was going to—I was going to run development. I was so excited, and I arrived on the first day, and it turned out that the develop, development department for a major publisher consisted of me, a tester, and somebody working part time to master. That was it. Two and a half people. And the um, dream was gone. <laughs> And well, it was it was absolutely insane. It was crazy. Then, uh, so I worked for them for, for and, and I, but I really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. It was, you know, with so few people, with me effectively running the whole thing by myself, it it made it very difficult to keep too much of an eye on, on what was going on, which was frustrating because it meant because I had to actually focus on the games that were going badly rather than the ones that were going well. Um, but uh, I'd known from the very early days a fellow called Rod Cousins who. Um, had run a game company called Quicksilver, which was one of the competitors to Arctic, but it was a small industry and everybody got on very well. And he, he was then running uh, Activision, and he, he kept sort of uh, coming back to me and saying, you should come work for me, you should come work for me. And um, he, he promised me a really sort of solid, you know, he, one of the things that excited me is he said that, you know, in his world, development led everything, um, whereas US Gold, it was all about marketing, all about sales. Um, and you know, development was right at the very back. Uh, and Rod was absolutely true to his word. I, I went to work for Activision, and development was uh, development did lead, lead everything. Uh, and I learned an awful lot from from him. Um, but I, I really miss the fact that you know, if you work in development, you you um, really don't get to control directly the games that you work on. And um, I, I met Noreen Carmody, who was one of the founders, along with Tony, uh, myself, and she was running Sierra. 
and it seemed that Sierra were very successful, but their games were, you know, they're, they're a little bit hokey. You know, the idea of King Graham of Daventry. Now, if you're Engl- English, then you know, well, you wouldn't be called King Graham. There's nothing wrong with the name Graham, but it, but it ain't a king's name. Um, and Daventry is, you know, just off the M1, where where the jumbos dump their air fuel before they land at Luton Airport. You know, it just it was just it, it just was a bit rubbish. Um It didn't have the uh, magic, let's put it that way. It, it didn't it didn't have the magic. It didn't no. have the magic and it, it took itself much too seriously. So both us and Lucas started about the same time um set up uh specifically in re- in reaction to the fact that Sierra and companies like that were taking themselves much too seriously. And we went what went the other way. Now of course um uh, uh LucasArt went slapstick, totally slapstick. Um what what we did right from the very beginning was write um, serious games, serious stories, but but with with humorous um, in, interactions between the characters, and you know that's what we've been doing ever since. And you know f- for the games that we write, I think it works it works well. So um, m- myself um, and and Noreen and Tony and and somebody that Tony was working with, uh, Dave Sykes. They were both at a company called Bytron, um, uh, writing aeronautical software. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the four of us came together and decided uh, that we were going to write adventure games. Um, and I guess the rest is history. And you've never strayed from that. You've never gone into other areas other than adventure. Not really. Well, uh, sort of interactive narrative. Um, so something like In Cold Blood, which divided people. Uh, a lot of people love it. A lot of people hate it. Um, you know, that was a different type of game, but it was always driven by a strong story. That's really what, what we've done. So I believe Lord of the Temptress was the first title ever released by Revolution Software. Where did that lead you on? Of course, this had the virtual theatre engine as well and wandering characters. Yes, which we never really built on. Um, uh, And in the back of my mind, there's always this sort of slight desire to go back and see, explore what we could do. Because nobody really has, 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 has done that sort of thing and it it was it was very exciting but it didn't quite work with adventures as they were in the 90s so um it it was a game that um i i pulled in a a fellow that i'd worked with at activision he'd been my uh, head of qa a guy called dave cummins um and and dave was great because he used to write bug reports on adventure games that we were publishing and the bug reports that he wrote were so much better than the adventure games that he was writing about there was a sort of real irony there um, and, and Dave was, was, was a very talented writer and um, uh, worked with us on Lure of the Temptress, Beneath the Steel Sky, Broken Sword 1, Broken Sword 2. Um, and then when we wrote um, Beneath, um, In Cold Blood, he decided that that really wasn't for him at all and, and left. And, and unfortunately, we then sort of lost, um, lost touch with each, with each other after that. Um, but, you know, he was a very important part of the, uh, of, of, of the early days, as was a fellow called Steve Odes. Um, who was a wonderful, wonderful animator. Um, he, he, he moved um, uh, a little bit into our, into our history. Um, very early Adam Tween, um, who uh, drew our backgrounds um, you know, beautifully. We, we, somehow we managed to get a really, really talented, uh, and then a little bit later, Steve Ince, um, who uh, I can't remember what he was doing, but none of these guys were working in, 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 in graphics. Um, and we pulled together a really talented team of people. Um, and our first game was, was Lure of the Temptress. Now, one of the things that I felt very passionately about was that uh, video games were um, very demeaning to women and that we wanted strong, you know, interesting women, which is why it's sort of quite an irony that the game ended up being called Lure of the Temptress. 
Um, but, but, but the reason is that um, we're working with a company called Mirasoft, which was owned by Robert Maxwell. Um, and, you know, it's a fantastic company, really great company to work with. Um, but the, the marketing people had, had asked me to specify what the name was and come up with some ideas, which I did. And at the bottom, I came up, you know, said Lyra the Temptress in brackets. I love this name, but it can't possibly be called this. Anyway, of course, the um, the marketing people came back and said, we, we love Lyra the Temptress. You've got to call it Lyra the Temptress. And I said, but um, the problem is that there's no luring, there's no Temptress. And they said, well, can't you put one in? So um, the whole game was, was adjusted and updated to fit the title that the marketing people wanted, which was actually very lucky because they gave us an extra, however long, two or three months to write it. And during that time, Robert Maxwell fell off his yacht and died, and the whole of Mirasoft collapsed. Now, you know, if we'd, if we'd just released the game as they collapsed, then we'd have been in, in real trouble. Um, in collapsing, the rights reverted to us, and um, uh, a, a, a very good friend who was the deputy managing director of um, Virg- of, of Mirasoft had moved across to work where, with Tim, Tim Cheney at Virgin Virgin Interactive, and that was Sean Brennan. And you know, Sean had been a great supporter of Revolution. Um, he'd, you know, when when things were going wrong at Activision, he'd he'd driven over and said, you know, if you can come up with a good demo would really love to publish your games. Um, so he was very supportive at Mirasoft. Um, and then he, he moved over to become the uh, deputy managing director, I think it was, at, at Virgin Interactive. And, you know, we, we were delighted to go and work with them uh, and continue work to, to work with Sean. So that's a very long answer to um, how the Temptress came about. But even in the early days then, it was quite up and down, the, the companies collapsing, and we probably oh, think of this so. more as a recent thing. No, 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 it was, it was, it was very much so, and um, we, we had a very good relationship with Virgin, um, and uh, we, we had written, um, we'd finished Lyra the Temptress, and before finishing Lyra the Temptress, we, we'd started on Beneath the Still Sky, and I'd, I'd met Dave Gibbons, um, when I was at Activision, because we were keen to talk to him about perhaps doing a game of Watchmen. Um, now, that never came about, but you know, I, I knew Dave, and um, I, I got hold of him for, uh, you know, and asked him if he'd like to work with us on a, on a new adventure game, uh, and he jumped at the chance, and of course he worked very closely with us on, on Beneath the Still Sky. Um, and, you know, as that was coming to an end, um, I was... Uh, talking to, to Sean, and Sean really wanted a, a more ambitious adventure game, one that really did compete with, you know, production values, with LucasArts, and, you know, the big developers at the time. And, you know, and, and, and Broken Sword was was born. Uh, obviously, you know, we worked with layout artists from the cartoon industry, and, you know, very, very, very established and accomplished animators. Um, and, and it was just really fun. So we sort of went from strength to strength. And that was very much under the, um, you know, in, in partnership with Virgin. But then Virgin collapsed. Um, they had been bought by Viacom and, as part of, sorry, they'd been bought by Blockbuster. And then bought, Blockbuster was bought by, by Viacom. And Viacom wanted Blockbuster, but they didn't really want Virgin. So um, Virgin was shunted across to Spelling Entertainment, but Spelling didn't really want them either. In fact, nobody really wanted them. Um, and it was a really depressing time, actually, um, at Virgin, and, and we were locked into Virgin at that time as well. Um, so we managed to extract ourselves from that, um, and and then worked with Sony for a bit. 
um, and that was when we um, wrote In Cold Blood. You must now, really James. love the fact then, now we're in the world of apps, this gives you a whole new direct access to the consumer so you don't have to worry about publishers going bust. Yeah, yes, very much so. It's absolutely brilliant because when, when I was writing my um, ZX81 games, um, we'd meet our audience at what were called microfairs, and they were fantastic. This is early 80s, um, tables where you'd actually sell games to people. You'd chat to them, you'd hear what they like, what they didn't like. It was just wonderful. And then um, then that was was broke, that relationship was broken first by publishers and then by retailers. Um, so and distributors and you know as time went on the relationship that we had with the um, with with our audience became more and more obscure Um, what's great about the ability to digitally distribute is that now we can work directly with our audience and you know I think give them a much better um, service than than a publisher would because ultimately a publisher um, their their main audience or sorry their main customer is, is a retailer and the retailers main customer is a gamer whereas you know for us our our main uh, audience are, are gamers of course and because of the kickstarter our, our backers are our uh, um, audience as well so it's actually a very pure relationship because we're responsible in terms of our backers and our audience in uh, they're the same people which is sort of kind of cool so let's jump ahead a little then. We'll go back to some of the history of revolution a little later. But as soon as you mentioned Kickstarter, it's very hard then to go back again. So Broken Sword, The Serpent's Curse appeared on Kickstarter and raised a massive $771,560 for development. And it's going to be released later this year. So why Kickstarter? The, the the deal that a developer gets, like like in any entertainment medium, whether it be film, whether it be records, um, sorry, whether it be music, um, is very much geared to the people that can control distribution, and that is obviously the publisher and the retailer. Now, um, Revolution was in the stage, was reached the stage where we were actually making a loss on the original games that we wrote, even though they were earning tens of millions of dollars at retail. It was just insane. And that's because so many people were taking the cut along the way. There was just nothing left for us. Now, um, the only way to break out of that was to self-fund our games. And we started um, Broken Sword, The Serpent's Curse around about just before January last year. And we knew that we'd have about six months worth of funding. Um, and that then we'd need to find, once we'd come up with a demo, and this is quite normal because this is what developers expect to do. They expect to come up with a demo. Um, we'd then you know, s- search some sort of funding, uh, maybe through a publisher or whatever. And, of course, people were talking about crowdfunding, but it had never really been proven. And so we owe a great debt of gratitude to Tim Schafer and Double Fine for um, really proving that it could work so spectacularly successful successfully um and you know when double fine was so successful it it sort of occurred to to me and to us that actually we we should be able to do the same thing um the 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 advantage that uh, double fine had of course was that they were the first company to do it and there's always a first mover advantage um and what tim said which i thought was fantastic on his videos he said you know we're going to write this game together it might be great it might be rubbish but it's going to be fun so he promised absolutely nothing what I felt very strongly that we, we for Broken Sword, big, being outside, I think you have a big advantage if you're based in California, particularly in San Francisco, 
is you've got a lot of venture capitalists around, a lot of rich people who are prepared to invest. You know, where, where uh, you know, he's, he's got Monkey Iron brand behind him, which is particularly well known in the US. Um, Broken Sword is more is stronger in, in, in Europe, particularly France and Germany. Um, so I felt that from for us, it was more important to actually have a, a demo and, and some artwork and, and to be further down the line. So we sort of held off until September um, and then launched the Kickstarter campaign just after Gamescom. Um, and, you know, I'm delighted to say that it was it was a great success. And, you know, not only did we, we raise a chunk of funding, which is fantastic, um, we also now have a direct relationship, a direct communication with 15,000 of our backers, which is just extraordinary. We'll send them an email out. And, you know, 15,000 people are, are hardcore fans. We'll, we'll get it. And the idea of being able to communicate with people in this way would have been unthinkable five years ago. Um, so, you know, we're just beneficiaries of this extraordinary change that has come from social media on one side uh, at digital distribution on the other. It certainly plays to your advantage, doesn't it? Yeah, no, very much so. So what sort of things can we look forward to in Broken Sword? And again, congratulations on success for raising that because the original target was $400,000 and then you had yes. to have stretch goals because it was going so well and there was even the hint of Beneath a Steel Sky 2, which hopefully you'll discuss in a moment. So... Broken Sword, The Sermon's Curse, harks back to its more 2D roots. There's 3D elements, but there's a definitely a 2D-like perspective yes, there. We had no choice but to go to 3D, and a lot of people like the 3D. Uh, I mean, Broken Sword 3, a lot of people say, is their favourite game. Um, the the uh, Bear in mind that we were in a um, position where um, we were going through retail. Retail had you know, X number of hundreds of slots, maybe let's say it's two or three hundred. Um, and, and you, to be successful, you had to get your game into one of those slots. So it became incredibly competitive. And to, to do that, you had to have a publisher behind you. Um, games became more and more expensive. And retailer, publishers had to, would commission games that they had confidence that a retailer would want to stock in 18 months. Um, on the basis that that retailer would, in 18 months, have confidence that there would be enough people wanting to buy it to make it worth stocking. So it was a, a very convoluted chain. And um, the, 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 the perceived wisdom was, because PlayStation was so successful and PlayStation was 3D, that actually only 3D visceral games would be successful. And so we, we, we had no choice but to move to 3D. I'm not regretting that we did, but I'm saying that even, regardless of what we did or didn't want, there was a requirement to move to 3D. Um, we, we, we gained a lot, um, but we also lost a lot. And on balance, um, I felt it was good to, to actually move back to 2D because I gave more of a sort of cartoony feel, um, which I think would, you know, particularly appeals to a slightly broader audience. So what sorts of things can we look forward to in 5 then? What does it build upon the previous in this series? Okay, well, we, we moved to HD. Um, we moved to 30 frames a second. Um, and we, brew, we, we hopefully the game will feel more contemporary than it did previously. Um, and but 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 then also on the other hand, don't break, don't don't fix, don't try and fix what, what ain't broken. And you know the primary control system is 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 enhanced and and feels a bit more contemporary. But but ultimately it is still you know on 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 PC it is still effectively point and click on on. Um, uh, uh, mobile device with touch screens it's, it's still slide and tap um, it's, it's a system that works well 
Now, of course, for the more nostalgic among us, will we be revisiting any previous locations or revisiting previous characters? Yes, no, very much so. We, we as part of Stretch Goal, we promised um, uh, Dwayne and Pearl and the goat. Um, but yes, we do go back to, to, to some to some locations. What, what what's important is that we get a balance between um, the familiar from before um, and exciting new stuff. And I think we've got that about right. You know, there there are a few old characters, original characters, but you know, the vast majority are new. Uh, likewise, there are a few locations, but you know, the, the vast majority are new locations. Um, I think ultimately, the balance has to be much more in favour of new than 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 harking back to the original. Revolution Software being a British-based company, I find it interesting. Well, not, not unusual, but interesting that George is actually an American star in the, the game. <laughs> He's the, the, the main character. So why an American for George? Why not someone British? Because you're British-based. Probably because uh, at the time it felt that... You know, ultimately, what we need is two characters to, to convey the exposition. You know, obviously, in Lure of the Temptress, it was uh, Dermot and Rat Pouch, um, Joey and Foster in Beneath the Steel Sky... Um, George and Nico and Broken Sword. And what you want is you want an interesting relationship between the two. And and I think that I thought that uh, an American, because the Americans and the French have a real love-hate relationship with each other. I, I think I thought that that would probably be a slightly more interesting relationship than, you know, than a French girl and an English bloke. So, you know, it's it's one of those sort of snap decisions that you make that obviously has a profound effect going forward. And of course, one of the stretch goals, which unfortunately wasn't quite met, was beneath a steel sky too. Is that still something that's on the horizon? Oh, very much so. But but I don't know whether it'll be the next game or the following. I mean, we we, we haven't planned it, but yes, we we will write a, a beneath a steel sky too. And um, it's something that I've talked to Dave Gibbons about, and he's very keen. So yeah, no, no, I, I just don't know when. So. No, no, no scoop, I'm afraid, uh, apart from to say that we are keen to do it and we will do it um, at, at some point. Now, as a company, you've also been quite generous. Love the Temptress and Beneath Steel Sky, the original title, are actually available for free. So what was the thinking behind this? Ah, the thinking behind this was that they were both DOS-based games. And when Windows stopped supporting DOS, then ultimately these, these games were going to die. And the, the good folk at ScumVM um, took our source code and resurrected them and and our feeling was that because without scum vm the games we couldn't exploit the games anyway that it was only fair that we gave them away anyway um we felt that that was just the you know that was the agreement that that felt like a fair arrangement with uh, with our audience and you know it worked very well because the games were very popular we had the opportunity to um, release uh, beneath still sky on on iphone it was the first iphone game that we did and, and it was very successful and, and I guess part of the reason it was successful was because so many people knew about it, um, because it had been given away. So, you know, in the short, short term, we, we, we lost revenues. Um, but in the long term, I think it, it paid dividends. I think it was, you know, not, not it wasn't, uh, we, we hadn't thought about it too hard. But I think, you know, in hindsight, it was actually quite a smart move. Well, it kept your fan base alive consistently, didn't it? Yeah, they were able to play it on so. multiple platforms. Very much so, yes, yes. So, Beneath a Still Sky, that was set completely in the future with a comical little robot called Jerry, quite a time jump from Lower the Temptress before it. So, what can you tell us about this title? How did the ideas begin about it? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, I, I think we just sat down with Dave Gibbons. He used to come up to Hull. We, we had our offices in Hull in those days. Um, they did fantastic bacon butties in the arcade below us. Um, very greasy, but, but, but thick bacon. 
uh, in big, solid white vaps, a um, cup of coffee, and we just sit down and throw ideas around. And I, I, I really don't remember who came up with what, to be honest. Um, but Dave would be sketching, and he'd come up with little characters, and it was just really fun. So is that your tip, then, for being inventive? <laughs> yeah. Well, bear in mind that it was a product at the time. Um, you know, cyberpunk was very popular. And, again, what we were trying to do was sort of subvert a genre that... Um, that was popular. Um, Blade Runner had come out a few years earlier. Um, So, you know, it it was of its time, but I I think one of the reasons that it's lasted in the way that many of those sort of cyberpunk uh, ideas haven't is because it was underpinned by humour. And, you know, things, things, if you take yourself too seriously, or if you take yourself very seriously, then, then it can be extraordinarily dramatic, but there's probably less chance that it will age well. And I think that, you know, Beneath the Silver Sky generally has, has aged pretty well because of the humour. And I think that is probably one of the, the best beauties about 2D point-and-click adventures. They do age well. The, the yes, fantastic yes. backgrounds, even though the resolution may have been a lot lower back in those days, they just somehow still shine with details and magic, yep. which in the 3D world in particular, when you see textures getting very low and blurry, yep. it's yeah, no, more absolutely. of a struggle. Absolutely, and, and, and I remember very well taking, you know, filling the car with, with data tapes for Broken Sword 1 and, and chucking them because we, we absolutely knew that we'd have no need for those assets whatsoever. Fifteen years later, I wish I'd kept them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Oh, well. But you have got remastered titles. So Broken Sword has re-released on platforms like iOS and Android and PC and Mac and actually, the original music was refound because it was a much lower bit rate in the original yes. game, and now Absolutely, you've got CD yes. quality music. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. No, we had that um, from. Um, uh, we, we we had kept that. So yes, we, we we scoured our records for everything that we could and and reused it. And to be honest with you, even if we had had the you know the the the, the high quality um, speech. Um, then there would have been a real risk that we would have introduced horrendous bugs and, and, and problems. So I think it was probably as well that we stuck with the speech that we had. So the remastered titles also give you an option to add additional content. So in Broken Sword 1, there was actually a different introduction. Why, why the change? At risk of upsetting some of the fan base, maybe. Yeah, no, and, and quite a lot of the fans felt that it was a mistake to add this material. Um, it, it was because there was a lot of backstory that we didn't really cover, and it always worried me that we made assumptions. Now, some people didn't notice, some people did. Um, but in particular, there was a Nico backstory that was very rich, which we hadn't had the opportunity to include in, in the original game. So it just seemed like a great opportunity to go back and look at that and to try and clarify. And we, we changed, I mean, probably... People probably won't even notice, but we changed some of the logic as well. So, you know, we, for, for example, when she talks about the industrialists that were murdered, uh, there's, there was an oil tycoon, and it was suggested that actually um, he was a, a, a good guy, whereas you know, obviously he should have been a bad guy. So, you know, we, 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 we tweaked some of the lines so that that then made a bit more sense and um, hopefully filled in some of the plot holes that uh, existed. Um, and, and and that was great. And as I say, you know, for people playing it for the first time, they they they, they loved, broadly loved the game. Um, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that the 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 iPhone, you know, still has a, an average rating, Metacritic rating of 91, percent and you know, is 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 close as as, as damn it to five stars. 
So, you know, people, people generally loved it. The people that had played the original were quite right to point out that some of the hotspots uh, hadn't been included. Um, we get a few irate emails from people saying, why did you chop them out? Well, the truth is we didn't chop anything out. What we had to do was re-implement everything. And we just simply didn't, re- we re-implemented everything that we could think of. Um, but, but clearly there were some things that weren't re-implemented because, well, because we didn't think of them. Um, so, so we've got two quite different audiences. You know, the people who remembered it and loved it first time round, um, many of whom were very pleased, but some of whom felt that we should have included absolutely everything. Uh, and, and then a new audience who came without expectations, who you know broadly gave us great reviews. Exactly. I mean, you can't please everybody, and if you've got a nostalgic head, and I'm I'm one of them, you always look to the original as the the basis, and you yes, you take yeah. anything new with trepidation. But I think it was it was very good. I, I don't think it had anything to worry about okay. really. Great, great. Uh, I guess the one of the other things that people picked up on was that George didn't die. You couldn't kill him. Uh, uh, yes, yes. I'm not quite sure why we did that. Um, because, I, for example, there was a scene where he came out of the hotel and if he had an artefact on him, he would be uh, dealt with, let's put it that way. Yes, I know. And I, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, we, we, we in Broken Sword 2, you can get killed. And certainly in Broken Sword 5, you'll be able to get killed. Um, I think it's quite important to allow people to get killed just because then you have uh, a, a greater sense of jeopardy. And that's something that we... You know, that's important for the games that we write. Not not so much for the slapstick ones, but you know, for for, for the games with serious stories, I, I think it's important to have have Jeopardy. So, can you ever imagine seeing another Broken Sword title on a console or any future consoles? Or do you think those days have gone now? No, not at all. Um, we have an awful lot of people asking us about the console versions, and you know, we we I, I don't think it was it would have been right to um, create Broken Swords one and two on console because you know the resolution's not high enough. And I think we'd need, you know, to, to create an HD version. Um, you know, this new Broken Sword 5 is in HD. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm confident that there will be console versions. Um, we haven't reached an agreement with any of the format holders, so I, you know, I can't say which ones, um, because obviously that, that is subject to, 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 to agreeing, you know, that they, they will publish them. Um, and, and commercially it's worth our while um, publishing them on their, their, their platforms. So it'd be something more along the lines of Xbox Live Arcade or PSN release rather than an actual disc. Oh, I, 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 I well, I, I, I don't think we'd, we'd I, I certainly don't imagine at the moment that it would be, uh, it would be a physical. I'd, I'd imagine it would be a digital download. Yes. Well, thank you very much for your time, Charles. Always a pleasure, and I hope to speak to you again in the future. Absolutely. Okay, James. Thanks. Great. Bye bye then. <laughs>